Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, hello, my name's Alison. If we haven't met before, nice, uh, nice to meet you. It's been a little while since I've been here in this role, so real, a big privilege for me this morning to uh, share the message with you. Um, welcome if you are visiting from out of town, if you've travelled in because maybe for Christmas or maybe you're on holiday, maybe you're visiting family, maybe you're getting away from family, welcome. We're welcome to Suncoast Sun, Sun Church, so pleased uh, to have you. Uh, to all our regulars, a really special welcome to you as well this morning and hello to those people who are streaming online. We do get to finish our conversation today about peace on earth uh, and it's a conversation we've been having for a little while and my goodness, don't we need it. Peace on earth, you know, even as just in, in, our, own, in our own nation this week um, with people's lives being lost with the fires, you know, over 700 homes, let alone other um, buildings and structures have been lost um, since August. Um, we, we, need, we need peace in, in our nation, in our communities right now. You know, whenever I think of peace, I don't know about you, I have to remind myself that it does not equal tranquility. It's not a synonym for tranquility. Like I think peace, I think luxurious tropical island, pure, you know, blue skies and clear crystal waters and deserted enough, but everything on tap enough, you know, like I don't want anybody around, but I want people there if I need them, you know, like, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. That's, that's actually not what peace is. Peace is not, and that's what we've been talking about for the whole, the whole conversation. Peace is not an absence of, of conflict or an absence of tension or necessarily a beautiful, luxurious, tropical island. Peace is actually the presence of a person, the presence of Jesus in our lives. And we can, and you know this, you can have peace in the middle of a storm. You know that if you've been, ever been a parent, you know, you've raised toddlers. You're like, yeah, everything's, it's kind of like everything's chaotic and everything's super busy, but everything's going to work out. That's peace, isn't it? That's the, that's the kind of peace that we're talking about. Peace that kind of goes beyond what you can immediately see to know that everything's, take a breath, everything's going to be all right. Or maybe parenting teenagers, oh, everything's going to be okay. Yes, amen. And peaceful no matter where you are. Maybe you've just finished a really big year of work and you're finally on holidays. You're like, ah, oh, peace in the middle of the storm. The, the concept, peace on earth, uh, the, the words, the phrase, originally came from the angels who told the shepherds about the advent of Christ, the birth of Christ. There's a baby that's been born and he's going to be the king of Israel. And they said, peace on earth, goodwill to all people, goodwill to all men, to all mankind. You might be like, Alison, angels talking in the skies. I'm like, I oh, know. Okay, just bear with me. Let's actually go to the story. Let's go to Luke chapter 1 and hear the story of eyewitness accounts of the birth of Jesus. Now, Luke was a medical doctor. He was a man of science, not quite of the same ilk as our medical doctors today, um, but nevertheless, a medical doctor in ancient Israel in ancient times. And his work, Luke, the gospel of Luke, which means gospel means good news, you know, of the of the the message of Jesus. He actually was a commissioned work. He actually wrote it for a Greek man uh, called Theophilus. Uh, And if you open up the the first chapter of Luke, it says, oh, most excellent Theophilus, I've written this for you. I've done my research and I've gone around and talked to people who are eyewitnesses of Jesus. So it's a really great book of the Bible to read if you want a detailed and systematic account of the life of Jesus. And here we've got uh, the the section of Luke chapter 1 where he describes um, the angel, when the angel 
angel uh, came to tell Mary that she was going to have a baby. Uh, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a town in Galilee, but it wasn't like upper-class leafy suburbs. It's kind of like back blocks, you know, where do you come from? Oh, Galilee, you know, like that kind of town. Okay, you can probably fill in the blank for that kind of town from where you grew up when you were a kid. Um, so God sent to and the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. Well, let's just stop there, shall we? When was the last time you were introduced as a non-virgin or virgin? Like, really? Seriously, what is, what is this? Why is this descriptor in the middle of of the scripture. Why did Dr. Luke think that this was something that needed to be, you know, did she, what color hair did she have? No, no, no. We don't find that out about her. No, no. Because they were living in an ultra conservative, highly religious community where this was actually a thing and where it was a really big deal to be or not to be before and after marriage. It it was part of their culture. And so it's important in this account because he's about to say you're going to have a baby. And so a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. He was a descendant of David, which is also significant because David was an ancient king of Israel, and that means that Joseph was of royal lineage. However, Israel had not had a king for hundreds and hundreds of years. They'd been in exile, they'd come back, they were being currently being ruled by the Romans. You know, they had not been a sovereign nation for hundreds of years. And so they really had lived... Um, kind of at times as refugees, other times, you know, as as the slaves to the ruling class. Um, and so th- all these little bits of pieces that Luke has gathered together are actually significant. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I would too. I'd be like, who are you and what do you want? You know, I don't know. If I actually had an option, if I could opt in or opt out of having an angel appear to me, I think I'd opt out. You know, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, yeah, it's freaky. You know, um, so she's like, what? She was troubled. She was scared. And he said to her, Gabriel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God and you will conceive. That's why the other little piece of information was important. And give birth to a son and you, will call, you are to call him Jesus. Now, to a good Jewish girl, this was clear because for years they had been praying for a Messiah to deliver them out of their oppression. God sent the Savior. There were prophecies about it. You know, one day a Savior will come. One day a Messiah will come. And the name Jesus, probably more accurately pronounced Yeshua in Hebrew, is really similar to the name Joshua, which means Savior. And so this is a significant conversation, and she would have totally got that. And he will be great, Gabriel went on to say, and will call, he will be called the Son of the Most High. So just in case you didn't get it, he's making it really clear. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, which is her ancient ancestors. It's like it's, it, we're going to restore the kingdom of God, restore the kingdom of what she thought was going to be Israel, and his kingdom will never end How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? That's why it's a significant thing. And so he he replies to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. For no word from God will ever fail. 
Now, this is such a significant part of history, but we read this scripture from a completely different perspective to what Mary was in. So she didn't know what we currently know. If we could just have a look at the timeline here of some really major things that happened in Mary's life, I'm sure there was many things that happened, just some really significant ones though. She wasn't even yet at the birth of Jesus, you know? She hadn't even had the baby yet. She didn't know that some strangers from Persia were going to come and bring her gifts, really expensive gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. They're going to randomly turn up when she had the baby. She didn't know that shepherds would come looking to say, where is this this baby king? Where is the Messiah? Where is this baby who is God? None of that had happened yet. She's just having a conversation with a random angel who turns up and she gets to opt in or opt out, really. She, she's like, okay, what, what's my response going to be? Let's go back in time. She did not know. We know this. And if you didn't, I'm about to tell you. But we know that when she finally gets to marry Joseph, the man of her dreams, and has children to him, that two of those boys, two, she has many children, boys and girls, but two of them will grow up to write letters that eventually end up in the New Testament, part of the Bible. She, she doesn't know at this point when she's having a conversation with, with Gabriel that only one week after the death of Jesus, the death of her son, that the church would be one week, a couple of weeks, when however long the time was, don't hold me to that time frame, but very, very soon after the ascension of Jesus, after he died and you know, rose again, that the church would be born. And the first time that anyone preaches a message about Jesus, a bit like kind of what I'm doing now, 5,000 people made a decision to follow the way that Jesus said. She didn't know that, the, that there was going to be a whole new way of living. That's what they called it, the followers of the way. She didn't know that it was going to be such a big deal. She didn't know that she was going to watch her son die at 33 and something years of age and then be resurrected. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian or a Jesus follower or a Bible person, probably that's the one thing that you're like, yeah, I'm not quite sure about the resurrection part. And I would invite you to lean into that and to actually investigate, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, we may as well not be here. It is the one thing that is so important for our faith. It's the one event. And you might be like, I don't know, Alison, I grew up hearing Bible stories and I just don't know how I can reconcile them with my adult life. You know, it's not, it's just not all a fairy tale. You know what? The disciples of Jesus, they doubted. There is evidence firsthand, eyewitness evidence of their doubts right up until he rose from the dead. Not everybody was 100% sure that he really was God, including his mother and definitely his brothers. So it's not a, it's not a doubt that you need to shy away from, or some, not something that you should write off the whole faith thing on. Because many, many good people, you're in good company. Even the disciples of Jesus wondered about the resurrection. And I invite you to lean in to finding out about whether or not you think that that was actually a true event. Because if it is, it absolutely changes everything. But we look at Mary's life and we look at the conversation that she had with Gabriel that day and we go, hey, Mary, everything's going to turn out. She didn't know any of that. She's just a young teenage girl having a conversation with an angel and, and really what he's asking her to do is to totally give up her reputation and bear shame. And there's a few things she didn't do. She didn't just be like, uh-uh. 
this is not part of my five-year plan. I'm totally better than this. You're asking me to do something that's below me because really he was. Because people, that's why the word virgin was important, people who were found to be pregnant outside of marriage, the women were often killed. It was a massive risk culturally, socially. She knew the ramifications. She knew that people would blame her and her husband for, you know, before they actually got married and then it would not be good for his business. He was a carpenter. She, she knew it wasn't something, you know, that she was just like, oh, yeah, sure. But she didn't do that. She didn't say, you know what else she didn't say? This is what I think I would say. So, Gabriel, how many messages have you actually delivered in your life? Like, really? Did you really hear from God? You know, it's kind of a long way from heaven, wherever that might be, to here. You sure you didn't forget something? You know, is there part of the, how practiced are you in Hebrew? I'm sure you speak a different language in heaven, you know, like, it's something lost in translation. She didn't say that. And for the Christians, this is what else she didn't say. Don't you know I've got a call of God on my life? I'm better than this. No. No, you know what she said? In verse 38, we see her response. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left. I am the Lord's servant. You know, that is so countercultural for us because in Western society, we are all about, I am somebody. I am this. I have achieved that. I have these credentials. I have traveled to this many countries. I have had these experiences. I have this many children and this many grandchildren. I have this. I have that. I have, do you know what I mean? I've survived this. I did that. You know, we celebrate both great things and, you know, survivors. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't go, what do you do? I just serve. You know what I mean? Like, this is her response. So countercultural. But what we see in this response here is something that we don't talk about very much, but it's so incredibly important, and we see it turn up in the scripture more than one time is the strength of surrender. The strength of surrender. Because it looks like it's not a defeatist thing. In the Christian faith, surrender is not a defeatist thing, it's not an abdication thing where you give up responsibility, it's not a, it's not a backing down and being weak. It's actually incredible strength to take your will and your desires and what you want and constrain it for a greater purpose and a greater good. It's incre- it takes incredible self-control, incredible, you know, constraint. And I've got a, con- a, a bit of a continuum here, you know, where we, we kind of oscillate, don't we, between um, being worried about things, fearing, trying to control everything, in our faith and then being willing to surrender. And we're all at different parts of this continuum in different parts of our lives. You know, there might be part of your life where you're like, yeah, I totally trust God with that. Or maybe if you're new to the whole idea of Christianity, you're like, well, I might be willing to trust God with just that little bit. And then in other parts of your life, no, 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 I totally, I need to just set my goals. I need to move forward. I need to make sure that I need to stop my kids from doing that. And then when when I do, I'm going to do, I'm going to bribe them. I'm going to yell at them. I'm going to do all, try everything I can, make them feel guilty so they stop it so that I look good. You know what it's like. We all do it. You know, try to control our 
spouse, try to control our future, try to control our reputation, try to control the economy, try to control the weather, try to control, do you know what I mean? Like we try, we try to control, control, don't we? Like really. And it's like we almost in our society, in Western society, it's like we almost encourage that. You know, set your goals, set your milestones. You know, what's your strategy? Let's achieve, achieve, achieve. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's not necessarily a bad thing, except that you can't be God. And we all know that our greatest weakness is the really the limit to our strength. And that, that becomes an issue, doesn't it? Because we can't control what goes into our mouths, let alone what comes out of our mouths sometimes, you know? Like we're humans, we have desires, and sometimes we just are really discontent. And at the other end of the continuum is this like this trust, this surrender. And it's not defeatist. It's not giving up your responsibility. It's incredible strength where instead of trying to control all the variables, like, God, I need to take responsibility for what is mine, but I need to trust you. I just need to trust you what, with what is outside my control. The greatest example of this is Jesus. And I know he has an advantage because he's God, but nevertheless, it's a really good example. He gave up his deity, his power of being, a, of being God to a degree and constra- was constrained in human form. He became, God became man. All that creative power, all that autonomy, all that, you know, never sleeps, never slumbers, always working, to becoming a human where he had to sleep. He had to, do you know what I mean? Constrained into human flesh. And then as a man, he gave up his own strength and constrained himself and surrendered and prayed a prayer to his heavenly father that went like this, God, not my will, but yours be done. He, 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 was, the, he was the most um, perfect example of constraining or surrendering and the strength in that. And what we see from the life of Jesus is that he touched many people. He touched hundreds, healed many people taught many people, many people, were probably hundreds and thousands of people were touched by the life of Jesus. But in his death, when he decided to bring his will and surrender and submit to the will of his heavenly father, so much more, hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of people have been touched with the good news that God loves them unconditionally. So there's more to the timeline than what we can see. And that is the incredible power of surrender. Because surrender says, God, I can't see everything. I actually can't control everything. I'm exhausted by that. I need you. So not my will, but yours be done. And we see this, um, I, I suppose, we see this work out in our own lives, in our decision making. I have a bit of a, a bit of a diagram here about our decision making. You know, what, how many decisions do you make every day? based on what you want. You know, this is what I want in my life. And you need to be clear. You need to have goals. And we're going to be talking a lot about this in January, you know, in the, in the Wish You Were Here series. You know, where am I now and where do I need to go? Where do I need to get to? So it's not necessarily a bad thing unless it's all you do, unless what I want takes up the whole pie, you know. Then it's a little bit like, yeah. 
And the whole, what, how many decisions do you make every day based on what others want in terms of, you know, your, what your boss wants, what your employees need, what your, what your family needs, what your kids want, what, you know, what, all of your responsibility, how much do you do for others, which is a good thing. Because if you're always inward focused, then your life is going to only become, it's never going to be that very big, is it? So being outward focused is a good thing. Unless, of course, you're totally driven by approval and guilt and there's a negative side to that. (laughs) You see, this is like, this is a tension that we manage all the time. My other question to you is how much of your decision making is based on what God wants? Which is kind of scary to all of us. Regardless if the idea of Jesus and God and faith is a new thing to you, or if you're like me, you grew up in church and you've been following God and trying to follow the teachings of Jesus and, you know, loving him for a very long time. I think we all get a little bit scared about the what God wants bit because what if he asks us to do something we don't want to do? You know, what if he asks us to go somewhere we don't want to go or give up something, a luxury or a comfort that we don't want to give up? What if he, what if he asks us to change our personality and be somebody different? You know, he, he's actually not going to do that because he made you the way he made you. He made you with your personality for the purpose that he has on your life. So I would encourage you, instead of seeing that as a negative thing, why don't you ask the question, what does God, you know, what, what would my, look, my life look like if God wanted the best for me? And if we just go to the next slide, and what if the whole pie was taken up with the idea that God wants the best for your life? I challenge you. I challenge you to live a week with this assumption. I challenge you to live a week that in all your exchanges, in your conversations with people, in your relationships with your family, in the way you spend your time, in the way you spend your money, in the way you give of your resources, in the way, however, the the giving and receiving that we do every week in terms of working and relaxing, you know, recreating and and you know, just spending time with people and spending time with ourselves and, you know, whatever it might be in all the exchanges that you do every week, give it, a, give it a go just for a week. Whether you are a believer in Jesus or not a believer in Jesus, what would your life look like if in everything you did, you made the assumption that God actually wants the best for you? So every conversation you had, you walked away knowing, I know God wants the best for me. In every, every bit of time that you spend, every dollar that you spend, I know God wants the best for me. How much pressure might that take off your life? You know, the funny thing about surrender is sometimes people might look at it and it's one of the criticisms of the Christian faith. I think you need to know the criticisms as much as you need to know the great parts of it is that, you know, this whole idea of surrender and the example of Jesus in giving up his life for things can look really defeatist. Um, But the thing is with surrender, it's not actually an abdication of responsibility. Like I said before, it looks more like the next little diagram. It's the day of diagrams today. I hope you're tracking with me all right. It's kind of like what's inside my what's inside my area of responsibility, what's inside my circle. And that circle grows and you know it, it changes size over time and different seasons that you have in your life. But what can you control? What can you control? Control your words, control your mouth, control your thoughts, control your attitude, control how you behave, 
control your reactions, control your proactions, can control a lot of things in our lives, can't we? There's some things we do need to take responsibility for. If you've got responsibility for people, you know, control's a tough word, uh, you know, depending on their age. <laughs> you know, but you, it's not, it's, this is not a dropping of responsibility here. But there's some things outside of our area of, of influence, outside of our area of, of responsibility that we can't control. We can't necessarily control the economy as much as we might like to. We can't control the future. We can't necessarily control every outcome. And oftentimes we get these things mixed up around the wrong way where we're trying to control other people, especially, you know, people that are not in our area of responsibility. Control and and we get ourselves so wound up and so worked up about trying to control the future, trying to control what people think of me in terms of my reputation or my image or my online profile or whatever, you know, like trying to control, control, control. But we don't take responsibility for what is within our control. And this is our words, our actions, our thoughts, our, you know, our, the way we process things, you know. And this isn't necessarily a scriptural thing, even though, you know, totally justified by scripture. This is like, you know, you could find this diagram on Pinterest. You can find this diagram on Instagram, you know, what's inside your circle, what's outside your circle. But we get ourselves into situations when, when, we, when we feel overwhelmed because we're trying to control stuff that's not ours to control. I was having a conversation with a few friends of mine and one of my friends said to me, she realised that, um, that, you know, that our kids could potentially, not guaranteed, but could potentially break our hearts the most. And those of you who are um, senior parents here, uh, you get this, in their adult years. What? Why? Because you can't control them anymore. You can't just go put them in their room <laughs> when they're 35. <laughs> you, you, do you know what I mean? Like it causes, it can cause incredible anxiety when we're trying to, uh, instead of take responsibility for what is ours, what is ours. And so we need to, we need to speak into this area of anxiety. You know, anxiety, there's usually two responses, research shows there's usually two responses to anxiety emotional when you're feeling overwhelmed and your emotional response "Ah, you know not coping and often emotional responses drive you to avoidance and just like you know denial (laughs) often not always Um, but another response to anxiety and feeling overwhelmed is um, is problem solving so right I'm going to put these strategies in place and I'm going to you know make sure that I get up half an hour early and make sure you know do these things and and often um, that's where the work of psychologists comes in when the new testament church when the early christians were working out what living a life following jesus looked like they're living under persecution and they're still oppressed (laughs) but the message of jesus had gone out so far that it reached all around to Greece and Italy and beyond. There's a guy called Paul who wrote letters to these people and they were often overwhelmed with the situations they were in. They were often feeling anxious. And Paul wrote this letter to a church in Philippi and we read it in chapter 4 of Philippians. And he said to the new Christians, to the early Christian church, first century Christians, he says, be anxious for nothing. 
so he gives them some really clear what not to do's and what to do's. Be anxious for nothing, but in, through everything, by prayer and supplication, that means through prayer. Don't worry. Instead, pray about it and be thankful for things. But through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't do it on your own. Some things you can't control. You know, there are some relationships where you've actually tried, you're trying to be God to the other person. You just need to be the role that you are to the other person. You need to be friend. You need to be mum. You need to be dad. You need to be uncle. You need to be, you know, brother. You need to be trusted advisor. You need to be employee. Instead of trying to control that person and be God to that person, you just need to be the role that you have to that person. And the peace of God, he says, he goes, pray about it. Pray about it. Let God be God. Let God be God in this situation. And the peace of God, which surpasses your understanding, because we only know so much. We can only see so much. And even though all of us are really good at coming up with the best possible outcome that we think of, there might be another outcome that God has in mind that might be better than what we can think of. And he says, so the peace of God, which surpasses your understanding, it will guard your heart. I always think that's such an important picture to get, that the peace of God is not my luxurious tropical island. The peace of God, even though it could be, the peace of God is actually a guard, a protector. And what does it protect? It protects your thoughts and it protects your feelings, your emotions. It guards your heart and your mind. Let the peace of God guard you. And then in the very next verse, Paul says to the Philippian church, this is what I want you to do. He goes, brothers, finally brethren, finally brothers and sisters, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. So it doesn't just say, don't worry and pray. He goes, don't worry, pray about it, and I want you to use your thinking power, your energy, invest it into this, these things. And I don't know about you, but you might look at this list of things and go, Alison, that sounds so cliche Christian, so squeaky clean. I don't know, like the Flanders off the Simpsons or, you know, the Brady Bunch or, you know, something, you know, cliche. No, no, no. No, no, no. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a persecuted church. Many of them are losing their lives for the faith. And he says to them, don't be anxious. Don't forget to pray because God knows more than you do. He can see more than you do. He has a greater plan than you do. And use your energy. Instead of using your energy for worry and doubt and fear, anxiety, imagine what you could do with that energy. Imagine what you could do if you set your mind on things that are true. He goes, don't sweep it under the carpet. There's no denial here. It's not just pretending that it never happened or that it's not currently happening. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, it's all it's going to be okay. No, 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 no. Face up to it. But instead of just seeing it for what it is, see it for what it is and speak truth into the situation. What is the truth in this? What is noble? What is upright? What is the right thing to do? in this situation. See, this to me doesn't look like cliche Christianity. This to me looks like the cure for cancer. 
This to me looks like solutions to problems. This to me looks like the peace that you need in your home. This to me looks like the answer to your business. This to me looks like a solution and an open door instead of being overwhelmed. Imagine what you could do if instead of putting your energy into doubt and worry and fear, you put your energy towards productive, problem-solving, solution-finding kind of thinking. That's what Paul's saying. You know, every great invention, every great discovery has come to us as, as, as a human race because there was great need, great need, great, great need. Every medical intervention, every, every invention that has come communications-wise, inventions that have come to us because of ingenuity, because somebody needed something. And maybe you, maybe you are the catalyst. Maybe you have a role to play in finding solutions and meeting needs and bringing comfort and bringing hope. Maybe if you, instead of getting caught up in what we can see and what we know, if we constrained our will and went, God, you know what, God, I'm actually at the end. I haven't got any more. I can't see any more. I don't know any more. I'm actually at the end. And we had a response like Mary. And we aligned ourselves with the will of God instead of our own version of what life should look like. We aligned ourselves with the will of God and we said, God, I'm your servant. Help me to surrender. And to surrender my anxiety, to surrender my fear, to surrender my worry to you. I'm your servant. Let your word, Mary said, let your word be to me as you have said. Let my thoughts be like this. As I align myself with the will of God, let me see truth. Let me see nobility, uprightness. Let me see justice come to this situation. Let me find purity in this situation. Let me find what is lovely. Let me speak out a good report. Let me speak out the best. Why don't we start to call potential out instead of just speaking out the worries? Anyone can identify things. And start to call out potential, start to call out, you know, the the strength and, you know, the, the amazing, the gifts that God has given us. Start to use them. Meditate on these things. And then when Paul's writing to this first century church in Philippi, he says to them, the things you've learned and received and heard, saw in me. He uses himself as an example. Do them. Do them. And the peace of God will be with you. So he gives us some really practical things. He says, take control of your mind. Take control of your thoughts. I think sometimes we think that we have a right or that we're entitled to our thoughts. Um, But let's be honest, there's too many people in our lives for us to let negative thoughts rule us. We can't just let them run away with us. You actually have a right to control your thoughts. You have a right to intercept your thoughts. It's one of your God-given capacities as a human being. And so we control our mind, turn up 
turn up solutions, turn up what is pure, true, noble, just, lovely, of a good report, turn up the virtuous things and turn down. Turn down, turn off. Anything that will rob you or others of peace. And that means turning down or turning off stuff that you are viewing and stuff that you are saying. What comes in, what comes out. Turn it, some of it you need to turn it down. You go, mm, hold, your, mm, hold your tongue. Other times you need to mm, turn it off. And the peace of God guard you, guard your thinking, guard your mind, guard your heart, guard your emotions. Mary said these words, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. That whole idea of having surrendered thoughts. I was talking to a friend of mine um, recently, she's talking about everything that was going on in her life and how she's getting quite wound up. And typically she's not a wound up kind of person. She's a high capacity woman who ten, you know, generally keeps 10 balls in the air at once, you know, like, you know, you've met them and you love them and then you walk away going, I feel so intimidated around them, you know, that kind of. And she's talking to me about how she was feeling so anxious about so much stuff that was going on and what if and what if it impacted the future and blah, blah, blah. And she said she actually had a moment where she's like, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, I need to trust. I need to trust, I need to surrender. I need to trust that God will work everything out. And then she said these words. And so I went off to do my job. She still had responsibilities. She still had to do them. She couldn't let balls drop, you know. But she said these words. So I went off to do everything with my surrendered thoughts. I thought, wow, how much truth is in that? with my surrendered thoughts. I just want to take a moment to pray for us, to pray that God is our peace. And just to take a moment to go, you know what, God, I've been carrying stuff and I need to give it to you, especially the stuff that's outside my area of responsibility. God, I need to let it go. And trust you. God, I pray that in our surrender, God, in our surrender, in our decision, God, to trust you, God, that you would use that decision, God, that you would use this posture of servanthood, God, to birth something greater than we could even imagine, God, to birth something more than we have capacity to think of ourselves. God, as we surrender, God, we lay down our agendas, we lay down, God, our, our worries, we lay down our doubts, we lay down our fear, we lay down our fears for the future, fears for our kids, fears for our families, fears for our security. God, we lay it down. And we say, Holy Spirit, Spirit of peace, come and fill us. Guard our hearts and our minds. And God, give us solution kind of thinking. Help us to see what is true, what is noble, what is just. A good report. God, let our mouths be mouths that speak out the good report, the good word, the good, the will of God. 
We pray, my God, that as we surrender, God, we trust that you would use our surrender, that you would use our lives in a greater way that we could, than we could have ever imagined, even if we never see it in our lifetime. You know, Mary <laughs> didn't know that in 2,000 years' time, every other hospital would be named St. Mary's, every other school. She didn't know the significant part that she would play in so many people receiving hope. What hangs in the balance of your decision to surrender? Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.